Let's go ahead and open in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you and to listen to your word and see what you would show us from that. And we ask you to guide and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Make it to the right chapter. Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 1. Now when he, that's Jesus, had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this, for he loved our na- loves our nation, and he has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went to them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter into my, my house. Therefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto you, but sent in a word that my, that my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And Jesus heard, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were returning, and they that were sent returning to the house found the servant whole that had been sick. We just want to look at this. Starts out with Jesus going to Copernicum. Now, we think of Jesus as being Jesus of Nazareth. But when we read in, in Matthew chapter 9, Copernicum is where he considered his home all right, in the early years. This is where he went back to. He'd go back to Copernicum. Now, Copernicum is only a few, few miles away from Nazareth, so it's not real far away. But Copernicum is the big major city in that area. Uh, it would be like for us saying, okay, well, I'm from Kingman. You know, if you're outside of this area, nobody knows who Kingman is. But for us, Kingman is the nearest decent-sized place or, or bull, bullhead city, all right? Um, and it's like if you live in uh, the Phoenix area, you just tell everybody you're from Phoenix. You don't try to tell them I'm from Sun City or all the other cities around it because nobody knows where they are, all right? But Jesus is home-based in Copernicum, and he returns to Copernicum after this long period, and there's a centurion who has a servant that he dearly cares for who's sick, Sick unto death. He's on the verge of death. And that's literally what it means that he is on. I don't know why this servant is important to the centurion. It could be any number of reasons. Maybe he's valuable to him. He does a very important job. Maybe he saved his life at more than one occasion. We don't know. There's nothing told to us why this servant is special to him. But he hears about the miracles of Jesus. Now, this is going to be something that's very interesting because this servant isn't necessarily a Jewish man. The centurion definitely isn't a Jewish man. The centurion is a commander of a hundred soldiers of Rome. So he's definitely not a Jewish servant. And he sends to Jesus for a miracle. 
Now, this is quite interesting, you know, and it kind of reminds me, how many times do you have somebody when a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker that comes to you and says, you know, I don't really go to church, I don't really believe in God, but would you pray for something for me? You know, and it's kind of amazing to me when people ask you to pray when they don't really believe in God in the first place. Now, this centurion most likely believes in God. He just doesn't, he's not ready to become a Jew. He's, and he sends to the elders and says, you know, hey, I have no business going to this rabbi. Would you go to him and ask him for prayer for my servant? Would he come and heal my servant? Now, I find it interesting. They go to him, and I, I love their attitude when they go to Jesus saying, this man is worthy of you coming into his place. He is worthy. He is good. He is, he is one, he's a wonderful man. And they list off his attributes. He, he loves our country. He's doing good things for us. He built the synagogue here in Copernicum for us. Uh, you know, he is a man doing good works for God. This is a dangerous place to begin to believe in. If you think that good works will please God, you're in the wrong place. Because good works do not get us into heaven. Good works does not even make God like us more because he likes us infinitely perfect to begin with. Now, he's going to judge sin and send people to hell. But when he sends people to hell, he's not rubbing his hands and saying, oh, good, I sent another person to hell. I picture him with tears in his eyes saying, I paid that debt and you're choosing to go to hell and have tears in his eyes. He's not up there saying, okay, another one I get to cast into hell. How many people believe that that's God though? You talk to a lot of people and they believe that God's just waiting up there with a big stick, waiting to beat people over the head and punish them. What a sad way to picture God. Now, unfortunately in our fallen nature, there are people that are that way. Just can't wait to do bad things to somebody because they deserve it. But that is not God. God loves us so much that Jesus died for our sins while we were his enemy. If he, if he treated us the way we deserve to be treated, we'd be in hell. All of us. With no hope of heaven. Because Jesus would never have been sent to be, be our redeemer. But he loves us so much that he sent Jesus. And these men are listening to Jesus. All these good things. You know, he's a righteous man. He's good. May not, you know, they're probably thinking he's not quite a Jew, but, you know, he's doing good things for us. So we want to treat him good. You know, we want to get this done for him. And it's very interesting to me that Jesus didn't challenge them on the fact that this man was just a normal human being. He could have quoted to them that all have, all have sinned. You know, he could have said that all deserve, all deserve punishment. The strange thing for, in this point, and Lynn was listening to this Jewish guy this morning talking about, you know, he was told that all Jews go to heaven. You know, uh, and you know what? There are a lot of Jews that believe that they're going to heaven just because they were born Jews. Doesn't matter what they do. There's only like three or four things that they can do to not make it into heaven as a Jew, all because of what their Abraham seed. Paul said clearly that not all Jews go to heaven. He says only those that believe in God and the sacrifice will go to heaven. And this is where we have to really come down to the fact of do we 
truly understand our sinfulness. Now, some people really, really know that they're sinful. Other people think, well, God, I've been to church all my life. I've been following God. I've been trying to be good. I'm really not that sinful. We have to be careful. I count myself in that group. Sometimes I have a trouble with that. I did not go into deep sins and everything. I grew up pretty much in the church. And sometimes I have to deal with this idea, well, I'm pretty good. Now, and then God reminds me how bad I am. It doesn't take very many sins to go to hell. It takes one. Because God's standard is perfection. And this man is, they're going in saying, this man's really good. You, wanna, you really need to come and see this man because he deserves to have you come and help him. So Jesus goes after them. He doesn't challenge their, there's no recording that he challenges their statement about his goodness. There's no, no, no recording of this that he's going, well, nobody deserves anything from God. There, there's nothing about that. And as they're coming, the centurion looks up and he sees the huge crowd coming to his house. This is a man who did not feel worthy to go to in front of Jesus by himself and said, just ask him to heal my, heal my servant. He never asked for them to come. He just said, I just want him to heal him. And he looks up, and here's a huge crowd, because you've got to remember, everywhere Jesus goes draws a crowd. All right? You have a crowd just if you get his 12 disciples. All right? Now you've got, and then you've got the crowd of the Sanhedrin and the scribes and the Pharisees that are all chasing after him to hear every word he says so they can figure out when he says something that they can kill him for. So you've got his 12, you've got Jesus, his 12 disciples, and a, a dozen or so scribes and Pharisees listening to every word that he says. You've got a bunch of other hanger-on, you know, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, and all the other disciples that are hanging around. So everywhere Jesus goes, there's a good 50 to 100 people at least. And then you've got all the people that are following him, wanting to get healed and getting miracles and wanting to see miracles. Everywhere Jesus goes is a hundred or more people. How would you like to be that person? Everywhere you go, there's a hundred people with you. He's coming down the street. The centurion looks up, and there's a whole crowd of people coming down the road. Didn't take him long to realize what's going on. He did not feel worthy to have a great rabbi coming into his home. So he sends out, and I love his message, and so did Jesus. He sent out to, the, to Jesus and said, Lord, trouble not yourself, for I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. Therefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. He goes, I didn't even think I was worthy to come before you, and I definitely am not worthy to have you come to my house. Now, what did the elder say? He's a really worthy man. He is really good. This is a man who knew his place in humility. He understood enough to know that he was not a righteous man. Now, what he was thinking, I don't know. We don't know what, you know, what he's done. He's spent, money, he's spent money on building a synagogue. He's doing, maybe he's trying to do good works. He's trying to appease God. You know, he is a centurion. He's, done, he's killed people in, in battle. He's, he's ordered men to kill people. He's probably killed in executions. All right? And he's looking at his life and say, I am not worthy to have a righteous leader come to my house. And he sends to Jesus and says, I don't deserve you. Now, 
Picture this, if you were one of those elders that had just got done telling Jesus about how worthy he is and how good this man is and how, how great this man is, and he, go, and he sends a message saying, I'm not worthy to have you come to me. That's why I sent others to go talk to you on my behalf. What did he want? I don't know. Maybe he wanted some talisman to be laid on him or some prayer to be made a long ways. We don't know. But then he said, For I am a man under authority, having under me soldiers, I say to one, go and he goes, and to another, come and he comes, and do and he does. What was he saying? He goes, I understand authority. What was he also saying? Jesus, you're under authority. You are a man under authority. You have power. He goes, I don't care where you are in this country. If you had just said, my servant's going to be healed, he would be healed. Do we understand the authority and power of God to start with? This is something that is very important for us to really grasp. Most of us have a very weak underpowered God in our mind. Now we'll say that he's omnipotent, which means that he's all-powerful. And then when our prayers, we're going, God, maybe if possible you could do something. And we're going, all right, is he all-powerful or not? Is he everywhere or not? And yet how many times do we act like he's not wherever we're at as we're sinning? Well, God's not going to see me over here in this place. <laughs> we need to fully understand the power and authority of God the Father, the power and authority of Jesus under the, the Father, and by extension, the power that we have as Christians because we are under authority to Jesus Christ. Now, if you're living a sinful lifestyle, you're not following God, you have no power because you're not under authority. Note what the centurion says, I am a man under authority. He knew that his next level had given him a position of power. And because he had power, he was able to give commands. And this is something that is important for us. If you've ever been in a position where you're able to give commands, Hopefully, you weren't one of those people that always had to say, well, because I'm the manager, you need to do this. If you're doing that, you're not the manager. You really are not under authority. You do not understand authority. You do not, you do not exclude, exclude authority. This centurion did not have to go to his servants and say, well, because I'm the centurion, you're, you're going to go do this. Because I'm the centurion, come over here. It was because he had a position and people recognized it. And he looks at Jesus and says, I am under authority. I recognize that you're under authority. He goes, all you have to do is speak. Just speak a word. Do we oftentimes forget the power of words? Creation, in the beginning, God said, let there be light. And there was. He said, let the land be gathered together, the waters be gathered together, and land appeared. He just spoke, and things happened. Do you really understand the power of your words? Now, we have a statement that we like to teach our kids when they're little. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. What a lie. Now, I know what we're trying to teach them, you know, don't be too sensitive, you know, don't let people get, get, get under your skin with their words. 
But how many people, even for us sitting in this room, that most of us are fairly old, remember things that were said to us as children that hurt us? You know, that hurt us, that still hurt, that still bother us. The power of our words are very strong. This is why we are to love one another. We're to confess faults. We're to pray for one another, just as our memory verse talks about. And we are to lift each other up. All through the scriptures, we are told to edify one another. We sang the song this morning, You Say, and I love that song because it says, you know, you say I am loved when I don't feel a thing. Do we truly know how much God loves us? Even when, if you're his child, he loves you even when you're living in a life of sin. If you're not his child, he still loves you even when you're in the, in the life of sin. God loves us unconditionally. Now that does not mean he's taking everybody to heaven. They have to accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as their own, their own sacrifice for their, for their sin and ask him to come and dwell inside them. But he loves everybody. He doesn't love you more if you're good and do all the right things. And he doesn't love you less if you do bad things. Do we fully understand that? Much of what we do in our life is driven by the idea that if I do enough good things, God's going to bless me. Now, how do we actually usually phrase that? Kind of the way same Job phrased it. God, I don't deserve all of these things because look at all the good things I've done for you. I don't deserve all these bad things that are happening to me. That's how we usually phrase that statement. God, I'm doing all kinds of good things. You, des you owe me good things because I'm doing good things. This centurion wasn't living on what he had done for the Jewish people to say I'm worthy. He wasn't saying that I'm doing all these good things, so God owes me something in return. We need to be very careful about that thought. This is a thought process we all get caught up in, myself included sometimes. God, look at all the things I'm doing good for you. Why, is all these, why are these things happening to me? And it's easy to get there. Then I always come back to Romans 8, 28, for all things work together for good for for. For those that are called according, I love God and called according to his purpose, you know, all things will work together for good. Job went through more than anybody I've ever heard of going through. Now, I felt like Job on a couple of times, and I haven't even gone through what he went through. But, you know, we need to be very careful. Just because we're living for God does not mean good things are going to happen to us. Now, we will reap what we sow. If we're sowing good seed, eventually we will reap a good harvest. But that does not mean the bad won't happen. It rains on the just and the unjust, the scriptures tell us. And we're going to have hard times. Matter of fact, we're in the middle of a battle. We are going to have hard things happen to us because Satan does not want us to have life easy because we're, on, we're in the wrong army. We're in his territory serving his enemy and building up the God's kingdom in the middle of Satan's kingdom. He does not like that. And we wouldn't either if we were building a kingdom and somebody was building another kingdom in our kingdom. 
And so Satan is out there saying, I'm going to go after these people and I'm going to make their life miserable. And he goes before God, and we see that in Job. He goes before God, and God says, have you, have you considered my servant Job? It's not a one-time thing. God is up in heaven. Have you considered my servant Ralph? Have you considered my servant? Put your name in that. In that. And Satan goes, yeah, I thought about them, but you put, a, you put a wall around them, and I can't get to them. And God says, okay, you can do this much to them. The good news is God has always put a limit on what Satan can do to you. Now, I know that's not such a great thought when you're in the middle of the problem. <laughs> okay, When you're in the middle of the trial and what's going on, it's not a really great thought that there's a limit to this because we don't know what that limit is. All right? Job did not know that he was going to lose all of his children. He did not know that he was going to lose all of his wealth. He did not know that he was going to lose his health and be on the brink of death and not die. But God had set those limits. We get to know that because we get to hear God talking to Satan. We know that, you know, well, Job, you know, you don't need to complain so much. You're not dying. And Job's saying, I'm sure thinking like I'm dying. It sure feels like I'm going to die. I don't know. And I don't know that I'm not going to die. We know that he's not going to die because we get the heavenly perspective on the book. We don't know what limits God has put on Satan when he comes at us. The centurion says, I'm a man under authority. I know what I'm allowed to do. I know what I'm not allowed to do. Do you realize that Satan is under authority and he doesn't want to be under authority? He has limits of what he's allowed to do. He is not God's equal. He's a created being by God. He is not omnipotent. He is not all-knowing. And he is not everywhere present. He is created being. Now, in the spirit world, he can move pretty fast. He can seem to be a lot of places as far as we're concerned. But he cannot be everywhere. He does not know all things and he is not all-powerful. He is not God's opposite. He is not building a kingdom against God in the long term because he, when he gets sent into the lake of fire, is going to be a prisoner of the lake of fire. He's not the ruler of the lake of fire. He's a temporary ruler in this world, but he's a prisoner for eternity just like everybody else. And it says in Revelation that when, we, when they look upon him, they're going, this is the one that made the worlds tremble. And we think about this. I know almost all of us have probably seen The Wizard of Oz. Don't look at the behind that curtain. Don't pay attention back there. As the real Wizard of Oz, the flim-flam man, is revealed. Satan at the white throne judgment is going to be revealed as a flim-flam man. The one who's made everybody worried about him. They're going to look at him and say, this is the one we were all afraid of? This is the one that made everything tremble? He is not God's opposite. He's on a leash. And God's, now sometimes we would say, God, would you please shorten that leash? I don't really like how long his leash is. And God says, it's for your good. I have a plan. His leash is pretty long sometimes. And we don't understand why it's so long. And God's saying, I'm, I'm, I've got to work. I've got to work. And Jesus, when he saw this centurion's faith, 
He says, I have not seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. Now, can you imagine a bunch of Israelites are following Jesus and he's praising a Gentile? Now, we don't really understand how big a deal that was. He's praising a Gentile. Now, if you've grown up in an idea of, of bigotry and everything, I, I did not grow up in that, but if you've grown up in an idea of bigotry, put whoever you think is the wrong type of person in that statement, and that's what Jesus is doing. He's praising somebody that they think is not worthy of being praised. The Jewish perspective is Gentiles were put on this earth to create fuel for the flames of hell. All of us Gentiles were just here so that hell would have something to burn for eternity. He's praising a Gentile and saying, He has more faith than any of the people I have seen in Israel. All of you other religious leaders, all you other people around here, this Gentile has more faith. He, know, he understands God better than all of you. That is going to strike the scribes and the Pharisees very much, and they're going to get angry. Now, it doesn't, respond, it doesn't show us that they responded with anger in this one. But it, you could, you, they would be seething. How dare he say that this Gentile has more faith than we do? How dare he do something like that? And Jesus was impressed. A Gentile understands God's authority better than all these Jewish people who have 39 books to get to know me that they read every Saturday that they read out of and they teach out of and they don't understand God. And here is a Gentile who just says, all you have to do is speak and my servant will be healed. How powerful is the God that you believe in? What is your faith toward that God? Do you believe that if you don't, haven't lived the right way that you will not have your prayers answered? We need to be very careful. Now that doesn't mean we can expect to have our prayers fully answered if we're living in sin. There is a, there is a correlation, don't get me wrong. If I'm living in the middle of sin and, and I'm purposely sinning, then I have no right to believe that God is, but His grace will answer my prayer sometimes anyway. Because all my answered prayers are by grace, not because I deserve them. Whether I'm living in sin or living as close to perfect as I possibly can, it's still a gift of grace when God answers my prayers. We need to fully understand God's grace. And grace we've talked about so many times. Grace is getting what we deserve. All right? Beautiful statement. The acronym that I've shared with you, and it's a basic one. It doesn't talk about the full, full thing, but grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. We get all the riches of God because Jesus paid the debt. That is pretty heavy when we think about it just alone. And it's only the tip of the iceberg of what grace is. God loves us so much that he gives us what we don't deserve, which is peace, love, joy. He gives us comfort. He teaches us to walk with him 
and enjoy all the peace that comes by knowing him because of the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. And we've said this so many times. Revelation tells us that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Before the world was created, God knew that Adam and Eve were going to fall. And he knew that Jesus would have to come, become a man, live a perfect life, and die so that we could be redeemed. And he still created us. Yeah, that blows my mind because if I was in that position, I'm going, okay, am I really going to create these people? They're going to they're gonna go into sin and I'm going to have to die for them? No, don't think so. We're not going to create them. We're not even going to begin. We're not even going to create them. That would have been my attitude and it probably would have been yours. You know, why create this and I'm going to have to go die for them? He created us knowing that he was going to have to die to redeem us knowing that there would be the majority of the people that rejected him that would spend eternity in hell for rejecting him and still created humanity to die for us for, for, for us to get saved. I don't understand that kind of love. You probably don't understand that kind of love. It's beyond anything I can comprehend. And yet that was what he did for us. We really do need to understand the price of our salvation and that it's all about God and what he has done. I get the pleasure of saying, God, I, I accept your gift. Come into my life and, and save me. And then my life becomes his. And then he gives me a life that is just so wonderful. He gives me peace and contentment in the middle of all the problems that are happening. He gives me a joy that is deep in spite of all the problems that happen. And the longer we walk with God, it seems like the more problems that happen to us. So that we can trust more in God for his direction and his care. And the world looks at us and says, you guys are nuts. You got saved and you gave up all the stuff that you, that you used to think were fun. And look at all the problems that are coming your way. And you're going, you don't understand at all. You don't understand the peace that's in my life. You don't understand the contentment that's in my life because God is there. He is filling that hole. And Satan can try as hard as he wants to get rid of our joy, and he's not going to do it. If you are God, you know you're God's. And this is the beautiful thing. We know that we belong to him if we're his. We know his voice. I do not have to wonder, am I saved? I know that I know that God lives in me and he has given me my peace. It is very clear to me. I am looking forward to the day that I die and stand in his presence and actually get to see him face to face. I'm not, not going to hurry it up, don't believe me, but I'm looking forward to the day that he says, come home. Come home. And step out of this body into his presence and see what he's got in store. We, if you're saved, we have a great blessing in this world. But this world is not our home. There will come a day when we will step out of this world, you know, and picture it, come off the gangplank, come off the, the jetway, whatever way you want to look at it, and you step into home. 
And if you've ever done any traveling, it's nice to be away. It's fun to be away and in, in, in all these things. But isn't it nice when you finally get home and you're in your chair, your bed, <laughs> your car, <laughs> you know, your home. And this isn't even home for us. There's going to be a day, if you are belong to Jesus Christ, that you will step out of this life into home. Into home and say, all right, I am home. This is perfect. And Jesus told the disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus himself is building our home. He knows us better than we know ourselves. When you get home, you're going to find everything that you need to make your home perfect. Whatever that's going to be in heaven, I have no idea. But it'll be the perfect place when you step home and find, I am home. And you'll sit down in your chair in your, in your, in your, your suite of rooms and say, this is perfect. The art, whatever it takes around you, the decorations will be just perfect. And you'll say, this is what I've been waiting for my entire life. Now, I think when I get to heaven, I'm not even going to want to see my room right away. There's one person I want to see when I get to heaven, and that's going to be Jesus. I might just want to be with Jesus for a million years before I even think about going to my, to my rooms. The one who loves us enough to die for us. And I just want to stay there and say, thank you. Thank you for all you've done. And then we get to explore heaven with all the greatness that is there. But our challenge for us today is do we fully understand authority? God takes authority very seriously. We need to be able to understand authority. In Jude, we're told that, that Michael in the battle with Satan over the body of Moses said, the Lord rebuke you. All right. Michael right now is the chief angel. But you know who the chief angel was before Michael? Lucifer, Satan. So he would not, under his own power, rebuke the fallen angel because the fallen angel had authority. And he says, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord told me to come and do this, so I, the Lord rebuke you. David had more than one opportunity to kill Saul. And he says, I will not touch God's anointed. God is going to remove him. He has the authority. God gave it to him. He's fallen. He's no longer using it correctly. But I am not going to touch it. There are times when we as Christians will have to be disobedient to authority and follow God rather than men, as the disciples told the leaders. They said, you shall not teach in the name of Jesus. And they said, we've got to obey God rather than men. That's going against authority. What happened? Every time they said that, they got punished. Just because we disobey authority to follow God does not mean the authority is not, loses the right to punish us. Why am I making this big deal? Because we are facing a time very soon where we're going to make some choices to obey God rather than men. You know, and I know a lot of people don't like to hear politics and because they think this, but I'm talking about what the Bible says. There are a lot of things in our country that are coming before Congress and the Senate that are going to change our life as Christians. And we're going to have to make decisions on who are we going to obey, God or man. 
Some of these rules coming down are going to make it against the law for us to speak that something is a sin. Are we going to obey God? Or are we going to obey God, men? And if you haven't done so already, write, write the senators and Congress people and express your view to them on these issues that you have for it. I'm not going to tell you what to believe, but if you believe God's word, I can tell you what you want to, what you want to believe. And you need to write these senators because if, if they get the wrong things approved, our life changes as Christians. We will be going to prison. We will be fined. We need to stand up for God, and we are very fortunate we live in a country where we can stand up so far. But things are going to change, and we've got to make some decisions. Am I going to obey God or obey man? There's going to come a time when we might very well in America end up in prison for following God. And I'm really serious about this. We need to prepare our hearts for how hard things are going to get. Because when we disobey man, their authority has not disappeared. They have the authority to punish us, and they will. They have all through history. And if you don't believe me, just pick up Fox's Book of Martyrs and read 1,500 years worth of history of the Christian church, where every 50 to 300 years, the church went through persecution and, killed, and Christians were killed. Right now in our world, Millions of Christians around the world are killed every year. And we here in America do not hear about it at all because it's not important enough to the news to get it to talk about millions of Christians that die. We need to get serious with where do we stand with God? Are we going to stand with Jesus ready to suffer under his authority? Or are we going to abandon authority and just let the world go to hell? The church has been doing that for over 150 years. Letting this country go to hell. Because they were afraid to step up and say anything. We have the Bible. If it's biblical and it goes against the Bible, we need to speak up. We need to share that this is wrong. And it's not going to be tolerated by Christians. We need to understand authority and step out and move forward. So my challenge for us is get to know who God is. Put yourself under his authority. No matter what he asks you to do, be ready to step out. It is scary sometimes to step out for God. God says, go talk to this person. You go, God, you don't understand. That person's scary. God, that person will rip me limb from limb. God, that person's smarter than me. I can't talk to my doctor about Jesus. He's educated. We need to start learning to open our mouth and share the gospel of Christ. It was very funny because I talked to Dr. Cazell, who was here last, last Saturday and Sunday. I talked to him about how he got saved. You know, and it was quite an interesting story about how he got saved. And, you know... We don't understand that we have a God who's touching people's lives. Think about when you got saved. Most of us did not get saved the very first time we heard the gospel of Christ. We fought it. We went against it. We pushed against it. And it, he's been described as the hound of heaven. 
He keeps pursuing after us and pursuing after us and pursuing after us. It has been said that people need to hear the gospel message seven to ten times before they finally respond. I don't know if that's true or not. It probably sounds about right to me that people have to hear the gospel message a lot of times before they finally respond. And I hope that everybody that's listening on the internet, maybe listening on the radio, knows God personally. Not just knows about him, but knows him personally because that is what Jesus said. He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will invite me in, I will come in and sup with him. God wants a personal relationship with us. Doesn't want us knowing about him. Doesn't want us to know things about him. He wants to know us personally. And we need to know him in that way. And if you don't know him in that way, get to know him that way. It's really simple. Just say, God, I'm a sinner. I deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died for my cross. Come in and live in my life. And it doesn't even have to be those words. Just admit you're a sinner. Admit that he did the work for you and ask him to come in. And it can be that simple. You can make that simple of a prayer. And he will come in and be your God. Not be a God, but be your personal God and be able to walk with you. We're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love for us and that you died for our sins. Lord, if there is anybody that doesn't know you, that is listening to this message anywhere in the world, through the internet, or even in this room, that doesn't know you, that today, this will be their day that they will, will admit that they're a sinner and come before you. And we just thank you. And Lord, for the rest of us, teach us your authority. Teach us to walk under authority, biblical authority and your authority. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.